Hello, everyone. I'm History Buff. Nice to see you. In this episode, I will explain Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. This is a movie about religion, and to enhance our viewing experience, we need to understand some basic religious historical information. I will use four stories to explain the relationships between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The reference materials for this episode mainly include biblical scriptures and information from Wikipedia. I hope you all will supervise, correct, criticize, and supplement as needed. Let's begin. The story starts with Adam and Eve, and among their descendants is Noah, the one who built the ark. Moving forward, there is a person named Abraham. Where did he live? We'll first take a look at the map of Europe, then zoom in on the Mediterranean region to find their places of residence. The descendants of Adam and Eve were mainly distributed in this land, and Abraham's tribe was here. Later he went to Haran. Then one day God suddenly appeared to him and said, Leave this place, for there is a land I have prepared for you in the distance, where you will establish a great kingdom. After a series of experiences, Abraham eventually arrived in a place near the Mediterranean Sea. At the same time, God made a covenant with Abraham, requiring him and his descendants to believe in God, live according to God's teachings, and promising to bestow upon him a great nation. From that point on, Abraham settled and prospered in Canaan. He had a grandson named Jacob. One day, as Jacob was returning to his homeland, he encountered a man who was actually an angel. They wrestled and struggled throughout the night. Finally, Jacob said, Brother, let's stop. The angel stopped and gave Jacob a new name, Israel. Israel had four wives and bore twelve children. These people became known as the Israelites, and one of his righteous sons was named Joseph. Due to jealousy from his brothers, Joseph was eventually sold into slavery in Egypt. His father Israel believed he had died. However, in Egypt, Joseph's unique ability to interpret dreams helped the Pharaoh understand his dreams, ultimately making Joseph the vizier, the Pharaoh's chief advisor. Later, a great famine struck Canaan, and Israel led his family to Egypt. There, Joseph recognized his brothers and welcomed them and their father, eventually settling in Egypt. The Pharaoh also welcomed the relatives of the vizier, and assigned them a region, which they inherited for generations. The population of the Israelites continued to grow, and later pharaohs became concerned about the possibility of an Israelite rebellion, marking the beginning of a significant turning point. Around 1250 BC, a man named Moses emerged among the descendants of Israel. One day, due to an incident, he killed an Egyptian and was forced to flee. He escaped to a mountain where suddenly God appeared in the form of a burning bush and spoke to Moses. God encouraged Moses to return to Egypt, deliver the Israelites, and said, Go back to Egypt and follow my instructions. I will bless you. Next, there was a pivotal event in Moses' story. He led the Israelites out of Egypt, but found themselves in a dire situation at the Red Sea, unable to proceed further. At this critical moment, Moses raised his hand, and God miraculously parted the Red Sea, allowing the Israelites to pass through. Subsequently, the Red Sea closed, engulfing the pursuing Egyptian army. 
The story continues as Moses leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai, where God delivered the Ten Commandments and the Law, inscribed on stone tablets. These laws became a permanent part of the covenant between the Israelites and God, laying the foundation for the belief system of Judaism. We are a chosen people with a covenant with God. This simplified historical overview illustrates how the descendants of Abraham formed the nation of Israel and the origins of the Jewish people and their covenant with God. Next, we will continue to discuss developments in the land of Canaan. The second-generation king was Saul's son, but his rule was not long. The third-generation king was a descendant of Judah and also Saul's son-in-law, named David. He was very devout and a skilled warrior. After some minor divisions, he once again united the land of Canaan, becoming the king of a united kingdom. The fourth-generation king was his son Solomon, and one of Solomon's achievements was building the first temple in Jerusalem, where people could worship the one God. By the fifth generation, the kingdom split into two parts. With ten northern kingdoms not recognizing this king and establishing the kingdom of Israel on their own. Two southern tribes continued David's lineage and established the kingdom of Judah. There was conflict between the two nations. Around 722 BC, political changes began due to the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria invaded the land of Canaan, and the northern kingdom of Israel faced oppression with the ten tribes being scattered and some escaped to the south. The trace of their descendants became unclear. The southern kingdom of Judah survived and became a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. The Israelites of Judah, who were part of the original twelve tribes of Israel, continued their history. Judah is the Hebrew term for Judah. Through more than two thousand years of linguistic evolution, this name became Jewish, which is familiar to us today. Therefore, Jews are two branches of Israelites. Next, we will refer to them as Jews. Their belief system is Judaism. In the year 597 BC, the Jews experienced a second major invasion, this time by the Babylonian kingdom, defeating the Assyrian Empire, forcing the Jews to leave their homeland and become slaves. The second exile lasted until 538 BC. With the defeat of Babylon by the Persian Empire, the Jews regained their freedom and returned to the land of Canaan, but their subsequent rulers were the Roman Empire. Similarly, the Jewish land was regarded as a Roman province. In AD 70, there was a war between the Jews and the Romans, with the Jews being defeated once again, Jerusalem plundered, and the temple destroyed. This second exile marked the beginning of nearly 2,000 years of wandering, with Jews dispersed worldwide, enduring various forms of oppression and persecution, including the Holocaust, during World War II. However, these difficulties did not make them forget. God's promise to establish their own kingdom in the land of Canaan. Finally, in 1948, in accordance with God's promise, the Jewish people returned to their homeland and named their nation Israel. The Israelites are descendants of Israel and are part of the Jewish people. Not all Jews have religious beliefs, but the majority follow Judaism. This is a brief overview of Jewish history. Next, we will continue to explore the origins of Christianity and the story of Jesus.
This section will involve God creating the world. But when it was translated into Greek, later people unified the meaning as Christ, which is the Savior we refer to. So, who was this person? In the eyes of the Jews, by the year A.D. 1, he had not appeared yet. Let's move the timeline to A.D. 1. The ruler of this Jewish province, upon hearing that a future Jewish king had been born in Bethlehem, decided to capture and kill him. So he secretly tried to discover the whereabouts of Jesus. But with a warning from God through an angel, Jesus' family fled overnight and eventually settled in the province of Nazareth. He grew up there, and in the early days, Jesus walked the paths of Galilee, preaching rather than spreading religion. Jesus never married, and he claimed to be the Son of God while displaying remarkable wisdom. Many people found his teachings beneficial, and he gained more and more followers. He also performed many miracles, such as healing the sick with a touch, feeding 5,000 people with a wave of his hand, and even walking on water. During his mission, he chose 12 disciples and led them to Jerusalem because he prophesied, I must go to Jerusalem to accept my destiny. I will die there, but I will also be reborn in Jerusalem. Just as the Messiah was prophesied, he rode into the city on a donkey and was welcomed by people along the way. He also went to the Jewish temple and criticized the behavior of the elder leaders of the Jewish community, which caused tension and displeasure among them. He claimed to be the Jewish king from the lineage of David. Wasn't that far-fetched? If you believe in Jesus, the Jewish population is too large and his influence is too great. It threatened their status, so they conspired to kill Jesus. Unexpectedly, one of the twelve disciples, named Judas, turned out to be a traitor. Judas decided to betray Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. During their last supper together, Jesus foresaw it and said that among us is one who will betray me. This scene is depicted in a famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci called The Last Supper. After this meal, Jesus was indeed arrested, handed over to the Roman authorities by the Jewish elders. At that time, the Romans had a form of punishment, where people were nailed to a cross to die. Later, Jesus was flogged by the Romans, and he carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the destination, where he was eventually crucified. His body was later buried in a tomb. So this is where the story of Jesus ends. Now let's move on to the third section of the development of Christianity. Please note that I am not a missionary, so my tone may change from time to time. I hope you won't hold it against me. We know that Jesus was a Jew who claimed to be the Son of God while displaying remarkable wisdom. Until the year A.D. 300, the Roman emperor at the time was named Constantine the Great. In the year 312, during a battle, he had a vision of a shape resembling a cross. Inspired by this vision, he instructed his soldiers to paint a cross-like symbol on their shields and won a crucial battle. Constantine eventually converted to Christianity, not solely due to this miracle but also for various other complex reasons. In 313, he issued the Edict of Milan, officially recognizing Christianity as a legitimate religion. Constantine became the first Christian emperor in history. After its legalization, the Christian community grew rapidly and church organizations became more established. Due to their influence, there were four major Christian regions in the East, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. In the West, the Roman bishop had a special title, either Pope or Archbishop, but let's just call him the Pope. Time went on, and Constantine realized a problem. 
There were regional differences in understanding Christ's teachings and discrepancies in Scripture records. There were too many versions of the Gospels and people were debating which one was authentic, whose interpretation of the Scripture was correct. In A.D. 325, he convened a council known as the First Council of Nicaea, attended by over 1-800 bishops from various regions. This council is a crucial background plot in the Da Vinci Code. The council aimed to address differences in understanding Christian doctrine, establish the organizational framework of the church, and regulate various rituals. For example, there was a debate about whether to use leavened or unleavened bread in the Eucharist, as well as whose practices were the most authentic. We all have different traditions, and there's no need to argue over them. It's just interesting to see how people's preferences are distributed. Back to our story, the First Council of Nicaea also discussed the nature of Jesus. Was he human or divine? This is the central point of the story in the Da Vinci Code novel. Some say Jesus was a human later granted divinity, while others argue he was inherently divine. This issue wasn't definitively settled until the Third Ecumenical Council, known as the Council of Ephesus, which established the doctrine of the hypostatic union, meaning that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. This idea can be compared to the wave-particle duality of light in quantum mechanics. I am light. I am a wave. I am the one true myth. There were other questions, too, such as how the Bible was finalized. Around A.D. 3I30, Emperor Constantine the Great commissioned scholars to prepare 50 copies of the Bible for the Church. These manuscripts served as significant references for the finalization of the Bible. Today, only two authentic copies have survived, and their content in Greek is essentially the same as what we find in the Old and New Testaments. Why do we say essentially the same? Because of the long history. Some parts are damaged and illegible. Some sentences are missing from entire sections, while a few individual sentences have been added. I looked into the missing sentences, and some are straightforward descriptions, while others are discussions. It's not my expertise to delve into this further. The finalization of the Bible underwent several discussions. The Church selected 27 books to comprise the New Testament, all of which were written by different people and chronicled Jesus' story. Yet their writings are essentially consistent with each other, forming the New Testament that billions of people read today. The finalization process for the New Testament was long, which is the second crucial point in the Da Vinci Code novel. The story continues in A.D. 38. The reigning emperor at the time officially declared Christianity as the state religion and named it the Catholic Christian religion. In A.D. 395, after the death of the emperor, his wealth was divided between his two sons. The elder brother, ruling the Eastern Roman Empire, moved the capital to Constantinople while the younger brother, ruling the Western Roman Empire, initially established his capital in Milan before it was moved elsewhere. Christianity began to diverge into two main branches. The power of the church also fragmented, with the Eastern Church centered in the Church of Constantinople and the Western Church centered in the Church of Rome. Communication between the two faced linguistic and cultural challenges. The Eastern Church primarily used Greek, the language in which the New Testament was originally written, while the Western Church used Latin, so they read the New Testament translated from Greek. Later on in Rome, the Pope gave himself a new name, Pope, which in Latin means father or daddy. The term Pope 
has evolved into the commonly used term pontiff when translated with a certain political connotation. However, it should be more accurately addressed as father. As the position of the Pope gained prominence, it became customary to refer to him as the Roman pontiff. The Pope claimed superiority, stating that the Eastern Church couldn't sit on equal footing because the Roman Church, founded by the chief disciple of Jesus Peter, held greater authority. The Eastern Church did not acknowledge this claim. After several attempts at reconciliation, the East-West Schism formally occurred in 1054, officially splitting the two major branches. The map provided here represents the distribution of faith, not the distribution of nations. In the Western part, it's referred to as Rome and Catholic, which is the Universal Church of Rome. When Catholicism was introduced to China during the Ming and Qing dynasties, it was translated as Tianzhu, which means Lord of Heaven in Chinese, referring to God in Heaven. In the Eastern part, it's referred to as Orthodox, which means correct or authentic in Greek. In the early Christian church, these terms began to be used in the second century. The terms Orthodox and Catholic emphasize the authenticity and correctness of their faith, with Orthodox particularly underscoring the true transmission of Jesus' teachings. As time passed due to the divergence between the two poles, the labels began to lean more towards Catholic in the West and Orthodox in the East. The Eastern Church is also sometimes referred to as Eastern Orthodoxy, but in its official name, it retains the universal terminology, Orthodox Catholic Church. Currently, the major body of Eastern Orthodoxy is located in Eastern Europe and Russia. Furthermore, it's important to note that the Latin scriptures of the Roman Catholic Church were not readily accessible to the common people. Only clergy could handle them. This led to corrupt practices where priests could interpret the scriptures as they saw fit. Even worse, the sale of indulgences emerged as a means for the church to amass wealth. Indulgences, originally meant to offset punishment for the sins of believers, had deviated from their original purpose and became a means of financial gain for the church. The turning point in this corruption occurred in 1517 when a German monk named Martin Luther, a devout Catholic, observed these corrupt practices and began questioning the integrity of the church. He delved into the original Greek texts of the Bible and, in that year, published his 95 Theses, outlining different doctrinal interpretations, particularly emphasizing justification by faith. The Catholic understanding is that you are born a sinner, and throughout your life, you must seek redemption through good deeds, rituals of penance, and acts of contrition. You have to earn salvation through your actions. Martin Luther disagreed with this notion. According to him, the Bible teaches that while you are born a sinner, you can be redeemed through faith in God and belief in Jesus. Faith alone is sufficient for redemption. He rejected the concepts of indulgences and the sacrament of penance. Following Martin Luther, a series of individuals joined his movement, presenting different interpretations from that of the Catholic Church. This group later came to be known as Protestants, highlighting their stance as protesters against the Catholic practices. The term Protestants is derived from protest due to their objections to certain Catholic doctrines. To provide an analogy, imagine two foreign missionaries approaching you. Hello, what's your name? One asks. Hi, I'm history buff. How can I help you? You respond. The other says, Hi, my name is John. This is Alex. We are protesters. Then you might think, 
protesters, something seems off with their affiliations. They might be troublemakers. I'm just an ordinary person and not interested in stirring up trouble. Therefore, when translating these terms, we use the term Protestant for simplicity. In this short segment, we can observe that various religious denominations have historically split due to differences in the interpretation and definition of their sacred texts. Each group believes they are the orthodox ones, and they don't listen to anyone else. So, how do you differentiate between them? In movies, you often see characters who touch their chests when reciting texts. These represent Catholics. They believe that all Catholic churches are under the authority of the Pope, who is considered the closest person to God. The Pope provides unified teachings for all Catholics worldwide. On the other hand, in Protestantism, there is no equivalent supreme unified bishop. Each group interprets scripture independently. This allows Protestantism to spread like wildfire. The map provided shows the distribution of Protestantism in Germany and neighboring areas in 2014. Certainly, within these major branches, there are various subdenominations. To sum it up, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism all share the belief in Jesus through the Old and New Testaments, making them all Christians. They all celebrate the birth of Christ during Christmas. As for the name Jesus Christ, it is transliterated from the Greek Iesus, Iesos, which itself is a transliteration of the Hebrew name for the Messiah meaning Yahweh saves. Christianity had early contact with China, but its first significant establishment occurred during the Ming Dynasty. A missionary named Matteo Ricci, known as Limadu in Chinese, worked in the area of Macau and Hong Kong, primarily using oral teachings rather than directly translating the Bible. It was only later that official Chinese translations of the Bible were made. This oral tradition left traces in the Cantonese language, which was one of the first languages where Christianity took hold. The origin of Islam dates back to the 7th century AD in the Arabian Peninsula, specifically in the region south of Canaan. There was a man named Muhammad who lived in Mecca. He used to retreat to the mountains for prayer, and at the age of 40 in the year 610 AD, he received revelations from God through the angel Gabriel. Subsequently, Muhammad began spreading the teachings of God. Following a similar pattern, his followers grew in number, and after a series of challenges, Islam was established. It's important to emphasize that Islam is a peaceful and submissive religion. We shouldn't project the views of some extremist factions onto the entire religious system. After all, Islam is one of the world's three major religions, with approximately 1.8 billion followers. The appearance of the crescent and star symbol in the Middle East has no direct religious significance. It was introduced as an artistic element during the Ottoman Empire in the 14th century. Finally, the revelations of Islam were compiled into the Quran, which is a crucial scripture for Muslim believers. In the 10th century, a significant split occurred between the Eastern and Western churches. During this period, Islam's influence extended into Western Europe. What followed was a prolonged struggle for control over Western Europe, including the launching of the Crusades. The First Crusade, in particular, captured some territories and established Crusader states, including the capture of Jerusalem and other smaller regions marked in blue. Subsequently, many Christians embarked on pilgrimages to this region, but the journey was perilous and often subject to harassment. In response to these challenges, the Knights Templar was founded tasked with safeguarding pilgrims along the way. 
This aspect is also crucial in the plot of the Da Vinci Code. The Knights Templar were distinct from ordinary knights. They were forbidden to marry and were not granted land. Their role was considered somewhat sacred, and their status was akin to the oath of the Knight's Watch in the Game of Power. However, in subsequent history, these lands were reclaimed by Islam and became part of Arab territories, primarily practicing Islam. Later, Jews also established a new homeland in this region, nearly 2,000 years after these events. This complex history includes various events such as the return of Jews to this land, with support from the United States, resulting in the establishment of the State of Israel. This is what we often hear referred to as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which continues to this day. The history of religion is intricate, and weaving it into a single narrative is exceedingly challenging. Although I would love to delve into more details, time constraints are a factor. If there are aspects not covered here, please feel free to discuss them in the comments. Thank you for your support.